Chapter Fifteen of A Trace of Memory by Keith Laumer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Gaudy hangings of purple cut the light of the sun to a rich gloom in the enormous high vaulted audience hall. A rustling murmur was audible in the room as uneasy courtiers and supplicants fidgeted, waiting for the appearance of the owner. It had been two months since Gope had explained to me how a formal challenge to an owner was conducted, and, as he pointed out, this was the only kind of challenge that would help. If I waylaid the man and cut him down, even in a fair fight, his bodyguards would repay the favor before I could establish the claim that I was their legitimate new boss. I had spent three hours every day in the armory at Rathgallion, trading buffets with Gope and a couple of the bodyguards. The thirty-pound slab of edged steel had felt right at home in my hand that first day, for about a minute. I had the borrowed knowledge to give me all the technique I needed, but the muscle power for putting the knowledge into practice was another matter. After five minutes I was slumped against the wall, gulping air, while Gope whistled his sticker around my head and talked. You laid on like no piper, good Durgan, yet you have much to learn in the matter of endurance. And he was at me again. I spent the afternoon backpedaling and making two-handed swings, and finally fell down, pooped. I couldn't have moved if Gope had had it in me with a hot poker. Gope and the others laughed till they cried, then hauled me away to my room and let me sleep. They rolled me out the next morning to go at it again. As Gope said, there was no time to waste, and after two months of it I felt ready for anything. Gope had warned me that owner Cooey was a big fellow, but that didn't bother me. The bigger they came, the bigger the target. There was a murmur in a different key in the audience hall, and tall gilt doors opened at the far side of the room. A couple of liveried flunkies scampered into view. Then a seven-foot man-eater stalked into the hall, made his way to the dais, turned to face the crowd. He was enormous. His neck was as thick as my thigh, his features chipped out of granite, the gray variety. He threw back his brilliant purple cloak from his shoulders and reached out an arm like an oak root for the ceremonial sword one of the flunkies was struggling with. He took the sword with its sheath, sat down, and stood it between his feet, his arms folded on top. "'Who has a grievance?' he spoke. The voice reverberated like the old Wurlitzer at the Rialto back home. This was my cue. There he was, just asking for it. All I had to do was speak up. Owner Cooey would gladly oblige me. The fact that next to him Primo Carnera would look dainty shouldn't slow me down. I cleared my throat with a thin squeak and edged forward, not very far. I have one little item, I started. Nobody was listening. Up front, a big fellow in a black toga was pushing through the crowd. Everybody turned to stare at him. There was a craning of necks. The crowd drew back from the dais, leaving an opening. The man in black stepped into the clear, flung back the flapping garment from his right arm, and whipped out a long-polished length of razor-edged iron. 
it was beginning to look like somebody had beaten me to the punch. The newcomer stood there in front of Cooey with the naked blade making all the threat that was needed. Cooey stared at him for a long moment, then stood, gestured to a flunky. The flunky turned, cleared his throat. <clears throat> the place of Bar Ponderone has been claimed, he recited in a shrill voice. Let the issue be joined. He skittered out of the way, and Cooey rose, threw aside his purple cloak and cowl, and stepped down. I pushed forward to get a better look. The challenger in black tossed his loose garment aside, stood facing Cooey in a skin-tight jerkin and hose. Heavy moccasins of soft leather were laced up the calf. He was magnificently muscled, but Cooey towered over him like a tree with a build that would have taken the Mr. Muscle Beach title any time he cared to try for it. I didn't know whether to be glad or sad that the initiative had been taken out from under me. If the man in black won, I wondered would I then be able to step in and in turn take him on? He was a lot smaller than Cooey, but there was always the chance. Cooey unsheathed his fancy iron and whirled it like it was a lady's putter. I felt sorry for the smaller man, who was just standing, watching him. He really didn't have a chance. I had got through to the fore-rank by now. The challenger turned, and I saw his face. I stopped dead, while the firebells clanged in my head. The man in black was Foster. In dead silence, Cooey and Foster squared off, touched their sword-points to the floor in some kind of salute, and Cooey's slicer whipped up in a vicious cut. Foster leaned aside just far enough, then countered with a flick that made Cooey jump back. I let out a long breath and tried swallowing. Foster was like a terrier up against a bull, but it didn't seem to bother him, only me. I had come light years to find him, just in time to see him get his head lopped off. Cooey's blade flashed, cutting at Foster's head. Foster hardly moved. Almost effortlessly, it seemed, he interposed his heavy weapon between the attacking steel and himself. Clash! Clang! Cooey hacked and chopped, and Foster played with him. Then Foster's arm flashed out and there was blood on Cooey's wrist. A gasp went up from the crowd. Now Foster took a step forward, struck, and faltered. In an instant, Cooey was on him, and the two men were locked, chest to chest. For a moment, Foster held, then Cooey's weight told, and Foster reeled back. He tried to bring up the sword, seemed to struggle, then Cooey lashed out again. Foster twisted, took the blow awkwardly just above the handguard, stumbled, and fell. Cooey leaped to him, raised the sword. I hauled mine halfway out of its sheath and pushed forward. "'Let the man be put away from my sight,' rumbled Cooey. He lowered his immense sword, turned, pushed aside a flunky who had bustled up with a wad of bandages. As he strode from the room, a swarm of bodyguards fanned out between the crowd and Foster. I could see him clumsily struggling to rise. Then I was shoved back, still craning for a glimpse." There was something wrong here. Foster had acted like a man suddenly half-paralyzed. Had Cooey doped him in some way? 
The cordons stopped pushing, turned their backs to the crowd. I tugged at the arm of the man beside me. Did you see anything strange there? I started. He pulled free. Strange, yeah. The mercy of our Lord Cooey. Instead of meeting out death on the spot, our owner was generous. I mean about the fight. I grabbed his arm again to keep him from moving off. That the impudent rascal would dare to claim the place of owner at Bar Ponderone? There's wonder enough for any man, he snapped. Unhand me, fellow. I unhanded him and tried to collect my wits. What now? I tapped a bodyguard on the shoulder. He whirled, club in hand. What's to be the fate of the man? I asked. Like the boss said, they're going to immure the bum for his pains. You mean wall him up? Yeah, just a peephole to pass chow in every day, so as he don't starve, see? The bodyguard chuckled. How long? He'll last. Don't worry. After the change, owner Cooey's got a new man. Shut up, another bruiser said. The crowd was slowly thinning. The bodyguards were relaxing, standing in pairs, talking. Two servants moved about where the fight had taken place, making mystical motions in the air above the floor. I edged forward, watching them. They seemed to be plucking imaginary flowers. Strange. I moved even farther forward to take a closer look, then saw a tiny glint. A servant hurried across, made gestures. I pushed him aside, groped, and my fingers encountered a delicate filament of wire. I pulled it in, swept up more. The servants had stopped and stood watching me, muttering. The whole area of the combat was covered with the invisible wires, looping up in coils two feet high. No wonder Foster had stumbled, had trouble raising his sword. He had been netted, encased in a mesh of incredibly fine, tough wire. And in the dim light, even the crowd twenty feet away hadn't seen it. Owner Cooey was a good man with the chopper, but he didn't rely on that alone to hold on to his job. I put my hand on my sword hilt, chewed my lower lip. I had found Foster, but it wouldn't do me, or Valen, much good. He was on his way to the dungeons, to be walled up until the next change, and it would be three months before I could legally make another try for Cooey's place. After seeing him in action, I was glad I hadn't tried today. He wouldn't have needed any net to handle me. I would have to spend the next three months working on my sword play and hope Foster could hold out. Maybe I could sneak a message. A heavy blow on the back sent me spinning. Four bodyguards moved to ring me in, clubs in hand. They were strangers to me, but across the room I saw Torbu looming, looking my way. I saw him. He started to pull that fancy sword, said one of the guards. He was asking me questions. Unbuckle it and drop it, another ordered me. Don't try anything. What's this all about, I said. I have a right to wear a ceremonial sword at an audience. Move in, boys. The four men stepped toward me. The clubs came up. I warded off a smashing blow with my left arm took a blinding crack across the face, felt myself going down. 
Another blow. And another. Killing ones. Then I was aware of being dragged, endlessly, of voices barking sharp questions, of pain. After a long time it was dark and silent, and I slept. I groaned, and the sound was dead, muffled. I put out a hand and touched stone on my right. My left elbow touched stone. I made an instinctive move to sit up and smacked my head against more stone. My new room was confining. Gingerly, I felt my face, and winced at the touch. The bridge of my nose felt different. It was lower than it used to be, in spite of the swelling. I lay back and traced the pattern of pain. There was the nose, smashed flat, with secondary aches around the eyes. They'd be beautiful shiners if I could see them. Now the left arm. It was curled close to my side, and when I moved it I saw why. It wasn't broken, but the shoulder wasn't right, and there was a deep bruise above the elbow. My knees and chin, as far as I could reach, were caked with dried blood. That figured, I remembered being dragged. I tried deep breathing. My chest seemed to be okay. My hands worked. My teeth were in place. Maybe I wasn't as sick as I felt. But where the hell was I? The floor was hard, cold. I needed a big soft bed and a little soft nurse and a hot meal and a cold drink. Foster! I cracked my head again and flopped back, groaned some more. It still sounded pretty dead. I swallowed, licked my lips, felt a nice split that ran well into the bristles. I had attended the audience clean-shaven. Quite a few hours must have passed since then. They had taken Foster away to immure him, somebody said. Then the guards had tapped me, worked me over. Immured! I got a third crack on the head. Suddenly it was hard to breathe. I was walled up, sealed away from the light, buried under the foundations of the giant towers of Bar Ponderone. I felt their crushing weight. I forced myself to relax, breathe deep. Being immured wasn't the same as being buried alive. Not exactly. This was the method these latter-day Valonians had figured out to end a man's life effectively without ending all his lives. They figured to keep me neatly packaged here until my next change, thus acquiring another healthy new man for the kitchen or the stables. They didn't know the only change that would happen to me was death. They'd have to feed me. That meant a hole. I ran my fingers along the rough stone, found an eight-inch square opening on the left wall just under the ceiling. I reached through it, felt nothing but the solidness of its thick sides. How thick the wall was, I had no way of determining. I was feeling dizzy. I lay back and tried to think. I was awake again. There had been a sound. I moved and felt something hit my chest. I groped for it. It was a small loaf of hard bread. I heard the sound again, and a second object thumped against me. "'Hey!' I yelled. "'Listen to me! I'll die in here! I'm not like the rest of you. I won't go through a change. I'll rot here till I die!' I listened. The silence was absolute. "'Answer me!' I screamed. "'You're making a mistake!' 
I gave up when my throat got raw. The people who dropped the bread through the little holes to the prisoners had heard a lot of yelling in their time. They didn't listen any more. I felt for the other item that had been pushed in to me. It was a water bottle made of tough plastic. I fumbled the cap off, took a swallow. It wasn't good. I tried the bread. It was tough, tasteless. I lay and chewed and wondered what I was supposed to do about toilet facilities. It was an interesting problem. I could see it was going to be a great life while it lasted. I laughed, a weak snort of despair. As a world saver, I was a bust. I hadn't even been able to get around to bailing out my pal Foster after Cooey had booby-trapped him. I wondered where he was now. Scaled up in the next cubbyhole, probably. But he hadn't answered my yells. Yeah, mine had been a great idea, but it hadn't worked out. I had come a long, long way, and now I was going to die in this reeking hole. I had a sudden vision of stakes uneaten and life unlived. I would have been good for another few decades, anyway. And then I had another thought. If I never had them, was it going to be because I hadn't tried? Abruptly I was planning. I would keep calm and use my head. I wouldn't wear myself out with screams and struggles. I'd figure the angles, use everything I had to make the best try I could. First to explore the tomb-like cell. It hurt to move, but that didn't matter. I felt over the walls, estimating size. My chamber was three feet wide, two feet high, and seven feet long. The walls were relatively smooth, except for a few mortar joints. The stones were big, eighteen inches or so by a couple of feet. I scratched at the mortar. It was rock hard. I wondered how they'd gotten me in. Some of the stones must be newly placed, or else there was a door. I couldn't feel anything as far as my hands would reach. Maybe at the other end. I tried to twist around. No go. The people who had built the cage knew just how to dimension it to keep the occupant oriented the way they wanted him. He was supposed to just lie quietly and wait for the bread and water to fall through the hole above his chest. That was reason enough to change positions. If they wanted me to stay put, I'd at least have the pleasure of defying the rules. And there just might be a reason why they didn't want me moving around. I turned on my side, pulled my legs up, hugged them to my chest, worked my way down, and jammed. My skin, knees, and shins didn't help any. I inched them higher, wincing at the pain, then braced my hands against the floor and roof and forced my torso toward my feet. Still no go. The rough stone was shredding my back. I moved my knees apart. That eased the pressure a little. I made another inch. I rested... Tried to get some air. It wasn't easy. My chest was crushed between my thighs and the stone wall at my back. I breathed shallowly, wondering whether I should go back or try to push on. I tried to move my legs. They didn't like the idea. I might as well go on. It would be no fun either way, and if I waited I'd stiffen up, while inactivity and no food and loss of blood would weaken me further every moment. I wouldn't do better next time. Not even as well. This was the time. Now. 
I set myself, pushed again. I didn't move. I pushed harder, scraping my palms raw against the stone. I was stuck. Good. I went limp suddenly. Then I panicked, in the grip of claustrophobia. I snarled, rammed my hands hard against the floor and wall, and heaved, and felt my lacerated back slip along the stone, sliding on a lubricating film of blood. I pushed again. My back curved, doubled. My knees were forced up beside my ears. I couldn't breathe at all now, and my spine was breaking. It didn't matter. I might as well break it, rip off all the hide, bleed to death. I had nothing to lose. I shoved again, felt the back of my head grate, my neck bent, creaking. Then I was through, stretching out the flap on my back, gasping, my head where my feet had been. Score one for our side. It took a long time to get my breath back and sort out my various abrasions. My back was worst, then my legs and hands. There was a messy spot on the back of my head, and sharp pains shut down my spine, and I was getting tired of breathing through my mouth instead of my smashed nose. Other than that, I'd never felt better in my life. I had plenty of room to relax in. I could breathe. All I had to do was rest, and after a while they dropped some more nice bread and water into me. I shook myself awake. There was something about the absolute darkness and silence that made my mind want to curl up and sleep, but there was no time for that. If there had been a stone freshly set in mortar to seal the chamber after I had been stuffed inside, this was the time to find it, before it set too hard. I ran my hands over the wall, found the joints. The mortar was dry and hard in the first. In the next, under my fingernail, soft mortar crumbled away. I traced the joint. It ran around a twelve-by-eighteen-inch stone. I raised myself on my elbows, settled down to scratching at it. Half an hour later, I had ten bloody tips and a half-inch groove dug out around the stone. It was slow work, and I couldn't go much farther without a tool of some sort. I felt for the water bottle, took off the cap, tried to crush it. It wouldn't crush. There was nothing else in the cell. Maybe the stone would move, mortar and all, if I shoved hard enough. I set my feet against the end wall, my hands against the block, and strained until the blood roared in my ears. No use. It was planted as solid as a mother-in-law in the spare bedroom. I was lying there, just thinking about it, when I became aware of something. It wasn't a noise, exactly. It was more like a fourth-dimensional sound heard inside the brain, or the memory of one. But my next sensation was perfectly real. I felt four little feet walking gravely up my belly toward my chin. It was my cat, Itzenka. End of chapter 15